So I'm going to read a poem called, It's Another Thing Now. I'm willing to stand in gentle rain at sunset, but not to stand in a storm of sorrow and regret. It was one thing to own all the mornings yet to come before I knew the darkness would yield to the sun. It's another thing now. I'm willing to see the sparkle in my love's blue eyes, but not to shield those dark with fear of life's demise. With honest hearts, I will share the depths of my pain, but with doubting minds, I've no time left to explain. It's another thing now. My time is limited and the days run late, and I'm too busy finding moments of joy to follow hardened dates. There's no time to waste on those who demand plans written in pen. It was one thing when I had a calendar without end. It's another thing now. Welcome to Share's RMBC Live podcast a place where we explore life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts and advocates who help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm wondering if you've ever found writing to be therapeutic, or do you find writing intimidating or something other people can do, but just not you? I felt both of those things, especially over the past year of quarantine and isolation, I discovered that writing can be something that helped me feel less alone. I've always admired great writing, and certainly early in my diagnosis of MBC, I discovered the stunning memoir of Nina Riggs called The Bright Hour. It was her honest reflection of her experience living and dying of MBC that helped me face my new normal in a way that I was grateful for. So during this month dedicated to mental health awareness, we wanted to focus on the healing power of writing from the perspective of the founder and editor of the Wildfire Magazine writing community, April Stearns, a writing workshop participant and psychotherapist, Aaron Weiss, and poet and writer, Eileen Kaminsky. Here's April and Aaron to start us off. Hi there, I'm April Stearns. I am the editor and founder of Wildfire Magazine, and I live in Santa Cruz, California. Hi, I am Erin Weiss, and I am coming to you from Annapolis, Maryland. First of all, let me say, Lisa, I'm just so happy to be here and to get to share with you guys today. So Wildfire Magazine grew out of my need for community when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So for me, that happened in 2012 when I was 35. And at that point, I was not as hooked into social media and things that I think are happening now. If they were happening, then I just really wasn't aware of them. And I really felt that I was struggling. I needed to see the images, hear the stories of how others were making a path after diagnosis. And I wasn't finding them. 
So reluctantly, I decided that I would just have to create the resource that I was yearning for, which was something different from those pamphlets that we receive. When we get diagnosed, we're handed all this paperwork and all these glossy pamphlets, but they don't come from within the community. They tend to come from doctors, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. And I wanted to hear straight from others who had been down this path. So what I did was turn to my journalism background and create a magazine specifically for the young breast cancer community. I called it Wildfire as a tribute to my dad. He had recently passed away from pancreatic cancer and prior to that had been a volunteer fire chief in our community for 31 years. And he did also work at IBM, but on the mountain and in our community, he was the guy who came when you needed help. And he was such a great inspiration to me for advocacy, for hard work, for just showing up for others in your community. But he also taught me the legacy of story. And it was through helping him through his cancer that I realized I wanted to stay in this cancer space myself and hear the stories, make a platform for creating those stories. So I launched the magazine, I called it Wildfire. And for four years, I wanna say that was it, but it was insanely hard work and it was a lot to manage. But when we all went indoors during the pandemic, that's when I started branching outward and bringing people together to form writing groups. And that's when the Wildfire writing workshops started. So it's been a little over a year now of doing that. Before that, I was doing them at conferences or just here and there, just a little one-off, but I've been doing these groups now for a year. It's been wonderful. So one of the things I consider to be one of my superpowers is research. And prior to my diagnosis of cancer, and then for a couple of years after that, I was working as a conference producer. So when I turned to making this magazine, I applied the same skills. I just thought, okay, so what are some of the themes that I want covered within this issue? Who is the best person to possibly tell that story? And at that time, a lot of people were blogging. And so I started just scouring the internet to try to find young people going through breast cancer because wildfire is more for people who were diagnosed under 50. And I just wrote to them and said, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing. I see that you're publishing your own work. Would you mind if I republished it? And so a lot of wildfires started that way with me republishing people's writing. And then as it slowly started to grow, people wrote original works specifically for it. And I was able to start attracting people who also were like, I don't think I'm a writer, but I'd really like to try to write my story. Would you publish that? And I've always wanted Wildfire to be a place where people who think of themselves as writers and people who don't think of themselves as writers could have a space to tell a really important story. Here's Wildfire Magazine workshop writer, Aaron Weiss. I was diagnosed stage four de novo following my very first ever mammogram that I got thinking actually it was a routine mammogram and ended up in that awkward space with the radiologist afterwards doing the face telling me like we have concerns and you need a biopsy and then following my staging MRI where I was told, oh, we think it'll probably be just stage two. The doctors found, I think, 12 or 14 meds. I had an original treatment plan with an oncologist that I, I now 
realized I should not have gone to, who treated me with a curative intent and put me through three rounds of chemo before I ended up at a research hospital getting now hormonal therapy. I had a full hysterectomy and now I'm on Ibrance and Letrozole, which is great and seems to be working. And I have no evidence of active disease, which is fantastic. And that was all within the span of August, 2019 to, I guess, April of 2020. And so what ended up happening is that I was finished and dumped into this place of, great, you have no evidence of active disease, now figure out the rest of your life. Uh, (laughs) As you know, the MBC diagnosis can destroy you. So I ended up trying to pick up these pieces and thinking to myself, like, I don't even know who I am. I don't recognize myself in the mirror. I have no idea what to make of this. So I started looking for community is what I started doing. And I connected with MetaViber, which was fantastic, and started a support group there with women that are also in my community here in Annapolis. We were all on Zoom. But what I was really searching for were other young women who were going through breast cancer, of course, but there's also this added bonus of the metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. And I couldn't find those people. And young women dealing with this are really in a unique position. We have really specific things that are happening in our lives, I think. You know, wanting to see our kids grow up versus wanting to be around for grandchildren. So I threw a list of resources that was on someone's webpage of some kind late one night while I was doing my 3 a.m. Let's scroll through all the worst possible scenarios and just feed my anxiety. Stumbled upon a link for wildfire and I clicked on it and immediately saw the young and stage four issue. It was like it was calling to me. That's what I needed to see. It was like all the lights went on and angels were singing. And it was like, oh, there's actually young women out there with metastatic breast cancer, just like me, who are dealing with so many of the same things that I'm dealing with. And at that point, as I was clicking through the wildfire site, I saw April's post that she was hosting writing workshops And I had been doing Caring Bridge, as I think a lot of us do after my diagnosis. And what I got a lot from people who would read my Caring Bridge was, you're such a great writer. You should really think about writing more about this. And I thought, yeah, right. Like, I don't have any time. First of all, I like can't even make sense of any of this. I don't have time to write more. But that was at at the exact right time I needed to see that because I thought, you know what? This is going to be perfect because I do love to write. I've never really considered myself a writer, but I do really enjoy it. And I thought this would be a great chance to hopefully dig a little deeper within what I had been going through for the past, I guess at that point, probably seven or eight months. And so I joined, I guess it was the second writer's workshop and have been enjoying it ever since. April can't get rid of me. And I've read and heard your writing. So I'm so glad that you're continuing to write because I think your fans from Caring Bridge were not wrong. You're very good. And your writing is really powerful. I think our listeners would want to know who was Erin before metastatic breast cancer? <laughs> I don't remember her very well <laughs> at this point because I've really worked to incorporate metastatic breast cancer into this version of me. But who was I? 
I had waist length, long blonde hair, which I no longer have. I feel like that's an important piece of who I was. I rocked the messy bun. I was that mom. I have two young boys who right up to my diagnosis were eight and six at the time. They're about two and a half years apart from each other. And I am a psychotherapist. So I listen to other people all day long and uh, really enjoy my job. I actually work now as a school counselor at a private school, which is also where my kids go. And they have both recently told me that they would not like me to work with them or their classmates when they are in middle school. So (laughs) that's fine. They're very um, self-aware. I like that. You're you're doing a very good job. (laughs) Thank you. Let's see. I run a lot. I was a competitive distance runner. I ran multiple half marathons. My body is a lot slower now and I have a lot more aches and pains, but I still try and run as much as possible. It helps keep me sane. But yeah, that's me. We live right near the Chesapeake Bay and I try to get out on the water as much as possible. We have a boat and take the boys out fishing and swimming and all the fun stuff. Wonderful. So you were a psychotherapist and still are. Did you work with adults prior to this position at the private school or were you? (laughs) I was in private practice for quite a long time and then realized after my second son was born that I thought it might be a great idea to get back into a school because that's where I had my original training, my internships and things. And while I loved private practice, I really enjoyed working directly with kids in the classroom. And so that was the big leap that I took. I do still have a private practice on the side. I see just a couple of clients and they're all adults. So it just keeps me with all of my feelers out into the various aspects of what I love about my career. Thank you so much for that. So you're a trained therapist and what is therapeutic writing to you as a professional and as a recipient of something like these wildfire writing workshops? So I often encourage my clients to journal. I think that's a great way to get into the heart of a lot of issues. There's a lot of introspection for yourself in writing things out. I think there's a lot to be said about seeing the words on the page and having them come from your brain onto the page through your your fingers and either writing or typing and then reading them back and going through because there's a lot that can be uncovered. That being said, I really dislike journaling. I have always started journals. I'm a great journal starter. I have multiple journals I've kept for a month. And then I think I can't do this anymore. I found that I was always writing with this idea that there was an intended audience, that someone would find this at some point and think, oh, wow, what a gifted journalist you were. (laughs) So it felt not like it was for me. And so what I really like about the writing that I've been doing through these writing workshops is that it's prompt style. So I don't have to come up with the topic and it's often very deep. And the topics are things that I had never really thought about writing about. April actually often says, we're going to tell more than just your medical bio right? Which we're all so versed in. This is when I was diagnosed. This is what happened. This is what I did. But there's so much more that happens in that process. And 
we don't always focus on that stuff. And having the ability to take some of that guesswork, the thinking aspect out of it, and just being told, I want you to write about this thing, it's really powerful. And there's a lot that comes out in that manner that I found I had never really thought about before. What did the room smell like when you were getting chemo? You know, what were you wearing the day that you got the phone call? Those kinds of things that are stuck in there in your memories that are just worth uncovering and thinking about. Right. The tapping into all senses as you're tapping into the memory. So that's a great point to ask you, April. What made you decide or how did you come to the process of the writing workshops? And I think it's worthy of describing for our listeners what you do in a regular writing workshop. So I had the benefit of having attended some writing workshops over the years for myself. I have always used writing as a tool in my own life for overcoming challenging things, starting from when I was a teenager. And so I had never been to a breast cancer specific writing workshop, but I had been to personal narrative memoir style workshops before. One of the things that my dad had planted inside of me is that I maybe had a book inside of me. And so I've carried that little seed around with me, but I never really knew how to bring it out or how to even tackle such a big project. And so now and then I would enroll in writing workshops here in Santa Cruz and just to see what that was like. And the ones that worked best for me, as Erin was describing, were the prompt style ones where I didn't need to just stare at this blank page and think, God, how do I even begin? It was more like, just start somewhere, start anywhere. It doesn't matter. Here's a prompt and you just write on it. And so I had that in my back pocket and knew how powerful it was for me in the sense of drawing forth memories and stories that I didn't even know were stored back there. But even more than that, getting to do it in community with others who were doing that same kind of work, who valued that same kind of work was really powerful for me. And then there's this other benefit to it too, is that sometimes when you're in different workshops, you get to actually read your things out loud. A little bit like Erin said, I'm not a great journal writer. And I think that's partially because I enjoy getting feedback on my writing, whether it's critique or in the style of my workshops, we just acknowledge each other and hold space for each other's stories. And to look around a room after you read something so raw and see people nodding with you or even tearing up because you just shared something that they can relate to is really validating. And that is at the core of what I wanted to do with wildfire in the first place was let people know that they weren't alone in this world, this diagnosis. So to answer your question about how the workshops are structured, what I've come to do with them is that they are prompt style. So that means that I prepare questions, poems, quotes, something to help someone enter the page. And I usually prepare about three to four per workshop that we're together. So that means that each person who comes to the workshop ends up writing for 30, maybe even 40 minutes. We always get together for two hours. I always leave room for discussion. And I also leave room at the end for people to share what they've written. There's no time to share everything, but usually everyone shares at least something that they wrote over the course of those two hours together. 
And I also always make it optional. So sometimes there are people who pass on sharing, but almost always, if they pass the week before, they share the next week because it is such a gratifying experience. Like I said, to get to hear yourself read this story out loud and see other people being like, yeah, that's totally normal. You're not weird for thinking that or feeling that it's okay is so incredibly powerful. But just in the writing process itself, like even someone who's never come to a workshop who just writes from a prompt and I share the prompts in the magazine or in my social media, I get told all the time that it helped them tap into something they didn't realize was back there. And I think that's the power of therapeutic writing is that it enables you to start the process of making meaning, which you can only do once you lay it all out and look at it and be like, okay, what is this thing that happened to me? And that's whether it's cancer or a fight with a significant other or whatever life event it is. You've explained how wildfire started, but did you have initial goals, like objectives? Okay, in two years, I'm going to have this many subscribers or something like that. Or was it more organic? Let's just see what happens. So I would say it was more organic, mostly because I don't have a business background. I really started this whole thing out of an organic scream within me to find my community. Really, if only five people had showed up and said, yeah, I want to read those stories. And that was all it ever was. And then it fizzled out. That would have been fine because that's what I needed in that moment myself. Now that it's been going for five years, we just celebrated our five-year anniversary and I put out the 30th issue. Now I'm starting to let myself think, okay, so what's next? What are the goals here? I don't know. Maybe it's bad to say, but mostly I just pinch myself every day that other people needed and wanted the same thing that I did and that I get to do this work. It's just incredible. The workshops came second after the magazine. And I think the magazine will always be my baby, but right now the workshops and helping people bring forth their stories is emerging as a really big passion of mine. And so I'm interested in seeing where that will go as well. I have no idea if that'll somehow grow bigger, but I envision as we start to maybe get back together in person, I would love to do some in-person workshops together. That would be the most incredible in-person event. It would be incredibly powerful. What would be your goals for Wildfire other than this in-person, hopefully, workshop, say, for the magazine? Do you have any other goals for it? Or are you meeting that? Because you're killing it already with this incredible every two months magazine. And I want to make sure everyone knows they're beautifully printed magazines. I would say they're not even magazines, to be honest. They're like these beautiful books. And we will have images of them, of course, as part of the podcast episode notes. And then the imagery is just incredible. The photography is gorgeous. Just anyway, beautiful, beautifully done. Thank you so much for that, Lisa. I really appreciate that. So eventually, I would love it if the magazine could come out every month. Right now, like you said, it's every other month. But there are so many themes and topics to cover in the world of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. The way that I have it organized right now is that each issue is on a theme. And the reason I do that is, like Erin mentioned earlier, people get really used to telling their breast cancer stories in a very clinical, medical way. And one of my goals is to help people reclaim that story and make sense of that story. And so I help them 
just like I do with writing prompts. I help them by giving a structure to each magazine that it's like the vessel and it helps contain that story. So some of the themes we've done are grief and acceptance. That issue just came out. I have a body theme coming up that I do every year. There's been mental health, fertility, relationship things, all sorts of things like that to help people guide their thoughts. But there's so many more than just six for a whole year. So I would really love to broaden it out to be every month. But like you said, also, it's like each one's a book. They're 100 pages long. There's a lot of contributors in each one, around 25 to 30. And so... Once I figure out how to clone myself a few times over, I'll make that happen. But in the meantime, I am working right now to put together a best of wildfire. I'm probably going to be publishing that more like a book, probably on Amazon or something like that to reach people who maybe aren't on social media and things like that. That's primarily where I am marketing right now. But there are so many people nowadays who know someone who was diagnosed or will know someone who was diagnosed, if not themselves. And I really want to step into that space so that when their friend, their sister, themselves, whoever is diagnosed, they already know that there is a resource there for them. So I'm planning this book. I'm also planning lots of outreach to nurse navigators and the oncologists themselves. And then just more getting the stories out there as much as we can. Oh, thank you for that. That sounds amazing. I recruited a bunch of our friends from the workshops to say, if you had a few moments with April, what would you ask? So here's a question from our friend, Allison Greenberg, who's in this current issue of grief and acceptance. How have the workshops surprised you in terms of your goals and expectations? Did you have any surprising feedback from participants? Oh, I love that question. I'm so glad Allison asked that. I think the most surprising thing for me about the workshops is that there are so many people who want to give it a go. I am at the point now where I have waiting lists for the workshops because I keep them small. They're no more than 10 people and I want that to stay the way it is, but I am starting to have people on waiting lists. And I think what's amazing about it is that every workshop has people who say, I am not a writer or I am not this kind of writer. You know, maybe they're a lawyer like Allison herself, and they don't really do introspective memoir style writing, but they feel that it could be helpful in healing from these things that are happening in their lives. And I'm just amazed that they are recognizing that call from within themselves to do this kind of work and that they're willing to trust me to try to guide them a little bit on it. But ultimately what they're doing is meeting a community and finding something so powerful in that community of writing together. I think that's what surprises me is how they're willing to show up for it. And then they're all in once they're there. Indeed. So Erin, anything about the workshops that surprised you? Did you surprise yourself in the workshops? Yes, absolutely. I was surprised at, I think, the emotional depth that I had. Of course, there's the pain and the grieving, but below that, there was so much more that I needed to uncover and give a voice to. (laughs) I'm crying, of course, as... I often do. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of emotion. 
that comes from this diagnosis. And I think perhaps my weekly crying every time I would share my writing came as a huge surprise. And of course this is, while surprising, perhaps not unexpected on my part. No, I think I have gotten very good in my life and career of turning emotion off, of repeating the very flat, this is my medical bio, this is what has happened to me, these are the facts, this is what I've gone through. And to finally give myself permission to uncover the pain and the grieving and the, the joy, a lot of unexpected emotions for me came out of all of this and I'm forever grateful for that. And I think in addition, meeting so many people in this community has been phenomenal. And I never would have had that experience at all. These women that I've been lucky enough to write with are now all my friends, which is really great. We communicate often and frequently. I've had people who I didn't even really know reach out to me and say, oh, I heard from my friend who wrote with you that you also have stage four. And so it's just been really gratifying. And my need for connection, which is what brought me to this in the first place, has been fulfilled, which has been really great. So, yeah, surprising the whole way around. <laughs> mm. I think it's important for our listeners to know that you're incredibly talented as a writer. You're really strong in your delivery and in, in the emotions that you evoke, but you're also very funny. So, were you always funny? Thank you. And no, I wasn't. So I have a younger brother who is three and a half years younger than I am and has always been the funny one in our family. And when I was 12, I paid my brother all of the money I had in my wallet, which I think was something like $9.12. I paid him to teach me how to be funny. His big lessons were things like don't laugh at your own jokes and have a punchline, silly things. And I got one lesson for my $9 and that was it. So not really worth the investment of my hard-earned money. But that being said, I think as I have gotten older, people have started to have a greater appreciation for my intense sarcasm and inappropriate dry humor, which often comes across in my writing as well as being incredibly salty. That's how I would say it. But no, I have not always been funny. So when people do say to me, you're so funny, you have no idea, actually. I don't know how I fell into this humor. You mentioned that your father said there's a book in you. Do you still feel that way? I do. I definitely do. But what I know now is there's not one book. There's probably several books in me. And one of the things that I've learned through helping other women tell their stories, particularly a breast cancer story, is that you don't get one shot at it. It's not like you just have to write the whole thing from start to finish and then you never get to tell that story again or, or do anything with that story. In fact, I think it's better if we break it into pieces, slow it way down, tell it scene by scene. And so 
that's how I envision any kind of memoir that I might write, just breaking apart these big moments in my life. Because one of the things that was so daunting for me is I thought, oh gosh, okay, now breast cancer. So how do I string all these random pearls of stuff that's happened to me in my life into this one story? And I just realized now I don't need to. And it feels really nice that I will just, when the time is right, explore and decide what that book is. But I also would love to put together a guided journal book that will help people with their writing and won't have so much of me in it, but will be for them. I would love to do that as well as maybe write something about what I've learned about writing too. I love that. You made a very clear choice to have a hard copy magazine or journal. And print magazines have been declining for a while. Certainly five years ago, I think the death knell of magazines was being discussed. I think it accelerated in the last five years. Here you are boldly going where no one else is choosing to go anymore. What made you decide on that? I think the short answer is that in the beginning when I started the magazine, but also now, I've just used what I needed to help me. It guided a lot of my decisions. I again, don't have a business degree. So I didn't do a whole ton of market research to be like, okay, are people going to want digital or are they going to want print? I just knew that I am a print person and I really wanted something that was a break from the busyness of our online lives. And I felt that the best way to do that would be to invite someone to get off their device and just curl up with something like a magazine the way that I personally like to read magazines is often just dipping in and out, maybe reading from the back or opening to the middle. I wanted to create something that someone could take in little bites, particularly because the topic is so big when someone might not want to sit down and read cover to cover. So I wanted to entice them with beautiful photography and stories told in a way that they could use it as an escape. That said, there are lots and lots of people who are very at home reading on their devices and like that too. So I would say my subscriptions right now are split 50-50 between people who subscribe digitally and those who subscribe to the print. To all those people who think print's dead, it's really not. It's just there's different mediums for different folks. You are a writer. You're an editor. You're a publisher. Do you consider yourself also a therapist? I actually don't. Um, The reason I don't consider myself a therapist, besides the fact that I don't have education in that Mm. area, but I feel like I'm just bringing the space. I'm making the space, bringing some tools to that space and letting people do their own work. And as I'm saying that out loud, maybe that is what my therapist also does for me. She's just creating also a space for me to figure out what those answers are within myself. But for me, I think I'm a writer first and then an editor and publisher. And where the writing workshops fits in is just wanting to create the space for people to do it. Here's another question from one of our friends in the workshops, Katie Murray. So she asks, April, you've shared with us your own writing epiphany as a child and the moment you saw that writing could start a healing process. And so we're interested to know how you feel about watching our healing journeys and processes accelerate due to the writing workshops. And do you learn from us? I love that question that Katie sent. I think 
I'm always learning from everyone who is in every workshop in the sense that I'm learning that different people come to writing from different places. Like I said, some people consider themselves to be writers, some don't, but some people too approach prompts in different ways. Some people have to break them down and really get very literal with the different questions. Other people are questioning in nature. And so they rebel against the prompt and they want to go at it from a totally opposite frame of mind, or they write about something entirely different. And I love watching how each person approaches a prompt because it helps me see the world through different eyes. I tend to be a rule follower, even though I've created this magazine and followed zero rules to do it. I do tend to be someone who looks around, okay, am I allowed to do this? Or how should I write this? And what's the right answer? And so it's inspiring to me when I keep saying in my workshops, there is no right answer. Like you just write whatever wants to come out, you just write. And then when I see them actually do that, it's so inspiring for me. And I learned so much from that. This is paraphrasing what Katie is asking, but everyone has a unique story, right? We have a unique life when cancer arrives and unique responses to that new reality. Are you seeing patterns in people who are writing about it after they've written about it, coming back, writing about it again? And this may be in the workshops, but you've been at this for five years. Yeah. I think that in terms of trends, two things come to mind right off the bat. One is quite literal is I'm receiving a lot more stories from people who've had black closure reconstruction after their mastectomies. When I first started the magazine, there wasn't so much awareness, I think, about flat closure. I myself had flat closure, but I didn't even realize that some people didn't know that was an option. And so I think as the work within that community has grown and people become more aware, they are realizing that they have a story to tell in that area. I would say that those kinds of things are happening all over the place as different people realize that they have multiple stories within them. And it's not just one breast cancer story. They're looking at, okay, what are my unique stories, sub stories, and then starting to bring those out. And I don't know if that's just me continually saying that you have a unique story to tell and you've got more than one story to tell that's bringing that out. But I feel like people are starting to break their stories down. And then the other thing I would say in terms of just trends is that people are more comfortable. I think some of the stigma of having had a diagnosis is starting to lessen. I don't know if that's our younger generation or maybe it's just social media and people are getting more comfortable telling their stories, but I feel like people are really bringing their truth out. They're really telling these raw and open stories in a way that I wasn't seeing early on. And I think there's just a swell of bravery. And we know from Brene Brown that bravery is contagious. And so maybe I'm noticing it because I'm publishing these kinds of stories and others are reading them and wanting to feel that same courage. But I would say that's what I'm noticing. So Aaron, writing sometimes feels like you're giving birth to something. It's something within you. You've put it down on paper. Do you have a piece from the writing workshop that resonates with you as your favorite child? Not that we're supposed to have favorites, as we all know. I have a couple, I think, that are particular favorites. I go back to some. So I will produce writing for all of the prompts because I too am a rule follower and 
need to get something up for each prompt. But I find that the ones that really touch me that are my favorite children, I go back to often. And sometimes I go back just to read them and say, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. I did a good job with that one. Or, oh, that was really raw. Or that was funny. It'll make me laugh again. I will go back and revisit them in that way. But then there are other times where I go back and tweak a couple of things, add a paragraph here, take out a couple of lines here, and they develop over time into really great things, I think. And there is still that piece of me that says, oh, share it, put it somewhere, which I try to do, but then forget about it. And my husband started a blog for me because that's what he does is computer stuff. So sometimes when I have time, I'll throw stuff up there, but more often than not, I just keep stuff. Sometimes I send it to friends or family, but a lot of it is just really for me. I just really get a lot out of reading my own work. But I think it's a nice touchstone for the therapeutic aspect of all of this, which is good. That's wonderful. So April, question for you, but a little different. So I'm sure that publishing each magazine issue is like giving birth to a child. So which favorite issue is yours? I think I really want to just say that it's the most current issue, but that's how I feel after each one. The issue that just came out is grief and acceptance. But if I can answer your question more broadly, I would honestly say that the themes that I'm most proud of in the magazine are the NBC issues. So mm -hmm. every issue has people diagnosed at every stage in it. And I never wanted it to be that the metastatic community only got this one issue. But what I really wanted to do was every October, put all of the publishing power that I have behind amplifying the voices within the metastatic community. So for the past five years, I've had an issue that's 100% NBC. And I started doing different themes. So last year, we had a self-care theme. This year, it'll be a survivorship theme. But the reason I'm most proud of that issue is because when I started Wildfire, I saw such division between early stage and stage four. And my closest, dearest friend, Becky, is living with metastatic breast cancer. And she told me stories of being asked to leave certain support groups for fear that she would scare the earlier stage of people that were there. And it left her with very little community of her own. And it just made me realize that there was more work to be done in amplifying those stories and those voices. And so I wanted to throw my hat in the ring and just be the only magazine that I know of that publishes 100% of those stories. And so every time the October, November issue comes out, and we're just besieged by all of the pink of Pinktober, I feel really proud. That's what I'm doing in that month. So I would say those are probably my favorite, but I also have to say the family issue, which you both were in, is mm -hmm. also a very close favorite too. Erin, I was going to say you were expressing how you approach it and I didn't want to start crying, but I think it says something that I really do remember your love letter to your son. And I could cry <laughs> just remembering it. It was just incredible. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that beautiful writing. So it's a place of both joy and grief and struggle in your workshops and through the magazine. You're someone who had an early stage diagnosis, April, and I 
don't want to sound like I can speak collectively, but I think most people living with metastatic breast cancer truly appreciate when we have allies like yourself who have experienced early stage breast cancer. It's pretty amazing and and profound to us. And it's completely legitimate not to want to live in cancer land. So do you find it difficult to be living in this world of cancer all the time? Oh, that's a great question. And it's a really conscious decision that I've made, but it is one that I also revisit frequently with my family, with my therapist, because it can be really heavy reading all these stories. Even though each issue has 30 contributors, I receive sometimes upwards of a hundred submissions for each issue. So I'm constantly reading these really powerful stories, but I think that it's really important work and it fills me up like nothing else does. Mm. That was something that I really learned. And like I said, at the start from my dad, because when he was passing away, when he was dying, he had pancreatic cancer. He just started sharing with me all of our family stories. And I, for myself was really grateful to be receiving them, but I could really see what it was doing for him to get to pass that legacy on. And I shared those stories with my brothers and I shared them with others, but I realized how powerful it was for him to know that I was receiving those stories. And so I do things to take care of myself and make sure that I'm able to receive these stories. But honestly, there is like no place I would rather be than doing this work. And I know people will probably come and work in wildfire and then need to go on and they won't be able or want to stay in cancer land conceivably forever, however long I'm allowed to do this work. And that's fine. I wouldn't begrudge them that at all. I don't think that it could be for everyone. I feel really lucky that I feel that it feeds me. It really honestly feeds me. It's not taking anything from me to show up for these stories and to be able to provide this platform. Do you have or have you settled upon a ritual, a way of coping with the loss that is inevitable when you have people living with stage four breast cancer as part of your community? I would say first and foremost, I feel so glad for every woman who has shared her story within the magazine because it is then there forever as that written legacy. And I feel... I'm healed by getting to share that with the community. So whenever someone passes, if I have published them, I like to amplify that story and to share that story again, share their words again. For example, in the last issue, the grief and acceptance issue, Kathy Brown wrote a story about Chiara D'Agostino and Chiara's sister is receiving that issue with that story in it. And Chiara was in other issues and she was in the cover even, but the fact that she could live on in the ways of these stories To me, that takes some of the sting out of the losses. It feels like a way for people to live on. And it also feels really comforting to know this is how we will remember each other. I don't know if I will have a stage four diagnosis myself, but I still am looking to see, okay, how will the community remember me if I pass? And to be creating this space where our stories can live on, it really gives me solace personally. Yeah, I think you should not be concerned that your legacy is already established, April. I think you've really done an an incredible job, sincerely, and consistently everyone I've spoken to about this to get 
their input for this interview said, yeah, her legacy has just been quite powerful and important to so many. So I think you should feel really good about that, holding a lot of those losses and that you can do it in such a way that is helpful to others is a true gift. And thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. I just want to add on that one of the ways that I'm able to weather the losses is by the fact that I am a member of the community as well. So I feel like I'm able to turn to others and say, damn, I hate this and this hurts and this sucks. And I don't try to just be a above it or something like that, or professional all the time. Like this is my community too. And I feel the losses. And so I also feel comfort within the community as well. Erin, how have you been able to deal with loss and grief within the community that you've now found as being part of the wildfire community? Having, I guess, just recently been a part of this within the past year and a half in finding community have not had to bear the weight of losing someone that I know personally, but I know it will happen. It's really heavy. It's a really heavy burden Mm -hmm. for all of us. And I think for myself, it's really hard not to take every loss that I read about, that I hear about, because there is a really wonderful community of women with metastatic breast cancer. And so these losses that happen, we hear about them, we're told about them, we see them. And it is a little bit of that egocentric part of me that can't help but think, when does this happen for me? And I hope that when it is that time, I'll be ready to deal with that. But it's hard. It's a lot. It is a lot of loss. And it's a lot of really wonderful people. And it just really... It's a really terrible disease. So I try and hold space each time I see yet another one of our sisters and brothers succumbs. I hate that word succumb. I also don't like the word fight. They lost their battle because no one's fighting and losing battles. Silly. Yeah, I just, it's just a really terrible disease. One of the other things that we always ask our guests is this year has been tough, right? So how have you, Erin, been taking care of your mental health personally? Obviously, the writing workshops have been a big part of that, and we understand that. What else have you been doing to take care of your mental health? (laughs) I have a really fantastic therapist who deals with my weekly crying sessions as well. She's fantastic. She actually specializes in people with terminal illnesses. And so that has been very helpful for me as a therapist, needing a therapist. I recognize what's happening and I'm like, oh, that's a cool technique. I should tuck that away in my pocket and use it, which I have. But in addition, it's just a really nice space for me to be able to talk to 
a third party who has no stake in the game, really. So that's been extremely helpful. And then I also try really hard or have been trying really hard to carve out space and time for just me because being home with two young boys is, it's great, which I say very sarcastically. Um, It is trying and there's a lot of energy in the house and I sometimes need a break and I need time to read and be quiet and not hear people yelling or punching each other, but maybe that's just my kids. (laughs) And how about you, April? How do you take care of your mental health during this time? Yeah. So I would say during the pandemic specifically, I really focused on my business. When the pandemic first started, I was not sure like so many, what it would mean for small businesses, which is why the workshops even started because I suddenly realized I wasn't ready to lose it and to let it go. And in a way, my way of getting through the pandemic was to double down and just work really hard on this baby so that it could survive. And so now I'm actually needing to employ other forms of self-care to counter the fact that I'm working a gazillion hours a day because my daughter actually just started back at school this week, but she's been home for the last year and a month. And so I didn't have the stop in the day to go drive her to and from school and things like that. And I just was able to start working literally like 12, 16 hours a day sometimes. And so now I'm having to readjust again. I lost track of a bedtime and um, some self-care things like that. So I'm trying to bring those things back in as things are starting to shift again. There's certain things from the pandemic time that I want to keep and certain things I'm ready to let go. And so trying to figure out that balance. Erin, what is inspiring you right now? Ooh, good question. I think I am inspired the most by my kids, to be perfectly honest. They are two boys and they are hilarious without meaning to be, although my youngest son, I think, means to be. But yeah, they're incredibly supportive, which I just really love. And they keep me going, which is fantastic. My husband is also remarkably wonderful. And he inspires me also. We will discuss things like where I bring it up like, Oh, when I die, this is, this is what you can do or whatever it may be. My recent obsession has been life insurance and the lack thereof that I have and will ever be able to get. So I bring it up a lot. And he, at this point, is like, yeah, I I hear that. We'll be fine. And also there's nothing saying you're going tomorrow. So cool it with the death talk. But no, my kids really keep me going. And my husband does too, which has been great. And also I think in general, there are certain things like the weather. It's getting nice now. It's springtime. uh, Helps being able to get out on the water shortly also helps. Those are those little things that I've started to really pay attention to and find joy in. You know, I think a lot of people go, oh yeah, springtime. I like spring. The flowers are great. And it's no, do you not see how gorgeous this tree is? Which I think probably two years ago, I would have done the, yeah, great. Now I have allergies. Look at the pollen on my car. And now it's like, look, look at this pollen on my car. It's incredible. I love that, Erin. Okay, April, what about you? What's inspiring you? 
I would have to say very much similar to Aaron in terms of just the outdoors. I am a hiker and also really enjoy taking, you know, photos in nature. And I have a border collie who keeps me hiking every single day. And even on the days when I don't want to, he knows what we both need is to get out on the trail. And when I'm photographing redwoods and I live by the ocean as well, sometimes ocean views and different things, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just very present in that moment. And so that really inspires me to play with photos, play with him and and just feel the trail. You mentioned that all of your workshops are now oversubscribed and waiting lists. Mm. (laughs) Yes. Our podcast is not going to help you with your waiting list. Like hopefully (laughs) more people are going to go, oh, I I need to do that. I'm going to go check out wildfire now. And what's the plan for that? So next month I am experimenting with kind of a next step, like a second draft kind of workshop, Mm -hmm. similar to what you're doing with Melody and the refiners. Mm -hmm. And so I want to experiment with having some places where people who maybe don't feel like they want to only do prompts, but want to take it a little bit deeper can go, Mm -hmm. which will also free up a little bit of space maybe in the prompt ones, because some people do just come and do one workshop and then that's all they needed. And then they move out, but other people not naming names. So it's hard because there are only so many hours in the week, but I would love to make more space for that. At this point though, I don't feel like I have someone in mind who could teach in my stead. So in that way it is limited, but waiting lists are pretty sexy. When people hear that, they just are like, put me on that. I don't care what it is, put me on the list. So yeah. So I am Eileen Kaminsky. I live in California and I've lived out here, oh gosh, 17 years now. I can't believe it, but I'm from the East Coast originally. I was diagnosed de novo in March of 2015. So I'm going in my seventh year with MBC. I have lobular. It started out as hormone receptor positive with no mutations to the bone. And now I have the PIK. 3CA mutation. So I'm on peak grade, which is my sixth protocol, which I can't believe. And it's caused me to be diabetic. So after this, I have to go for my weekly labs and <laughs> my Exgiva shot. It's like the life of the MBC person. It, it just never really stops. It's like doctor's appointments and so on. But I also have a blog that I've been keeping for almost six years now. And one of the things that I did when I was first diagnosed was I was seeking out cancer retreats. And I found one through a place called Commonweal, which is in Bolinas, California, north of San Francisco on the coast in Marin County. It's absolutely beautiful there. And they've been having what's called the Cancer Help Program for over 30 years now. And they only take eight people at a time. And there's about 30 people there who are like no names from cancer, like, you know, BJ Miller, the palliative oncologist, and 
the woman who wrote the Cancer Healing Kitchen, she does all the cooking, amazing meals. And then we have three oncological massages during the week and personal time with Michael Lerner, who is one of the co-founders of Commonweal and the Cancer Health Program. And I was lost when I first was diagnosed. I felt just there was no path in front of me anymore. My career was over. Everything was done. They came in and basically said, go home and get your affairs in order. And my response was, I I don't have time for that. They looked at me like I was crazy. So I just don't think of it as I'm living to die from cancer. I just think of it as I'm living and cancer is part of my life. Instead of sitting around feeling bad for myself, as I talked to Michael, he said, call yourself a writer. That's what you are. You've been doing it your entire life and you're a good writer. And I said, I don't feel like I have the reason to call myself a writer. He said, but that's what you are. So just live with that and be that and embrace it. And so I did. And so I'm a writer who happens to have NBC, who happens to write a blog that's focused on anesthetic breast cancer, but I also have my poetry on there. And I've been writing since I'm, I think, six or five years old. And my mom saved my first poem that I wrote to her as a gift from 1972. And I'll date myself because I was born in 65. So there you go. So that tells you how long I've been doing it. And it's healing. It's therapeutic. It definitely is a way for me not just to express myself, but to help other people have a voice. And the comment that I get the most on the blog is, thank you for expressing what I couldn't express myself. Thank you, because I don't feel alone. I know that what I feel is ridiculous or crazy or stupid because somebody else feels that way. And that was my goal when I started the blog was just if I could help one person. And now I have 3,000 subscribers. I really love how you describe your professional career before. You know, it was high-tech marketing and communications and all that. And you feel like it prepared you for your life post-cancer and that you need to consume all this information. You have to understand all these technical terms. This is for your life and for all of us Mm -hmm. to make decisions based on this new knowledge rapidly. And so that description really resonated with me and I'm sure it will resonate with our listeners. So how do you expect that evolving as going forward? So you're seven years in, how's that going right now? So health-wise, it's going okay. Metastatic breast cancer, I see it as this sort of mountain range. You're going up, you're going down. You have good years, you have bad years. You have good weeks, you have bad weeks, you have good nights, you have bad nights. It's just like that. It's unpredictable at times. I'm also lobular, and I also have very dense breasts as well. And that in and of itself was not necessarily a shock. It also runs in my family. And so there's family history, there's work history, there's the writing that I've done, the people that I've met. And through all of those things combined, where I am today and where I see things going forward is in service to others. And doing that through what's known as a healing circle. So a few women who have MBC together in a very safe container, a safe space to talk about whatever's on their hearts, 
and use silence and meditation to actually have a different kind of support call. Because what I noticed was on a lot of the support calls, they're very frenetic. Everybody wants to talk about what's going on with them. And some people don't get a chance to talk. Some people talk too much. Some people want to give advice. But what I think people really want to know about is what the experiences that you're having resonate with them. And I know that for myself, when I listen to a podcast, for instance, the ones I find most interesting aren't necessarily about the research I've already done online or with my oncologist. And I have a great oncology team. I'm really fortunate. But to hear other people's experiences who have either lived longer than I have and what's ahead, perhaps, or just what they've been through so that I feel less alone because it's an isolating disease. We lose friends. We lose family. We lose our cancer friends over time. And then also expanding out, not just to the MBC community, but to other terminal cancers as well. For instance, I work with Rudy Fishman, who does the Brain Cancer Diaries, and he has a video blog. And so we do two kinds of videos together. We do these music reaction videos, and we actually did a really cool flash mob, and about eight people participated, and it was really cool. And it was to a great Queen song. Actually, the first vlog I did with him, I'm actually the last poet from his poetry episode alive. The other two people have died since. And so one of the poems I wrote was called The Last Poet Standing. And it was dedicated to the two other people, Ben North and Melissa Blank, who died from glioblastoma, actually. Mm. And that's a horrible disease that takes people so quickly and so painfully. And it's very difficult to do. And Melissa's husband, Steve, is going through a lot of deep mourning right now. We've dedicated one of our music reaction videos to him. And so we use that as a way to mourn together, to heal whatever is hurting us at the time, whether it's he has two children that are young, seven and five, and watching them play and not being able to throw the ball anymore is so difficult. And my stepsons are older and they really can't accept my cancer at all. They've just blocked it out. And the videos actually resonate with them because they're from the age of the internet. They didn't grow up with a telephone in the house. They grew up with a mobile phone and they grew up with the internet as their way of communicating with their friends. So that resonated with them so much more than having to read my blog or having to listen to things about my diagnosis, which they don't understand. But music is universal and video for them is definitely the way to go. So it really helped me connect with them as well. And that was really a pleasant surprise, actually. And I find that in reaching out to people who I've met through social media, people who I've met through blog commentary, creating friendships and actually using the pandemic time and Zoom to connect even further. So you've got this one step further where now I see you. I don't just talk to you through writing or on a phone, or in a text message. Now I can actually see you have that personal interaction. And that's meant a lot to me over the last year and a half now, is it, that we've been in lockdown. And it's crazy 
there is that. And then working more with other writers on putting together an anthology. And in fact, Nancy Stordahl, who has Nancy's Point, she just put together a small anthology that's available on her website that actually she put one of my Mets Monday posts in from her blog. There's a lot of interconnectedness that we're so fortunate that technology has brought to us. And using my experience in my former life to actually help Fortune 1000 companies use technology better to help them service their customers and reach out more personally, I use that experience with myself to actually do a better job of it. And I'm pretty pleased and pleasantly surprised at the success of it. I recently read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. I'll just share a quote that I think might be interesting for us to discuss. So she writes, anyhow, the older I get, the less impressed I become with originality. These days, I'm far more moved by authenticity. Attempts at originality can often feel forced and precious, but authenticity has quiet resonance that never fails to stir me. And When I read this quote, I said, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It struck a chord because when I initially started writing about my cancer story and I was diagnosed in 2017 and for me, it just felt so many people have written it better. What do I have to say that's new? My story's not that exciting. All of these thoughts swirling in my head and I still sat down and I have started to write despite all of those nasty thoughts in my head. So do you ever feel that way? And do members of your community feel that way? And what do you say to them or to yourself? So my viewpoint on writing is this, no matter what you write, just do it. If you feel compelled to write, Don't think about how good it's going to be or if it's going to resonate with anybody. It's for you. And if you write for yourself, it's always going to be authentic because that's from your heart. You're speaking what is on your heart. And that would be the advice I would give to someone is what is on your heart is so unique and different from anybody else's, everybody's experience regardless of whether you have the same type of cancer or were diagnosed in the same year or whatever it is, your voice is your voice. And if you speak with that authentic voice from your heart and don't think too much about, is it going to be good? Is it going to be different? Is anybody going to read it? Do I even want anybody to read it? Is it just for me? Is it journaling? Is it poetry? Whatever it is, it's yours. It's your voice. and Being an English major, I've read a lot of poetry and I still do. And I have my favorite poets and and all of that. But I see that as the work of a poet. You have to read poetry to write poetry. The homework of a poet is not just to focus on their own, but to know what came before you. And I don't ever try to copy anybody's style or copy anybody's work. It's more understanding the cadence, the sound, the melody, the harmony, and the feeling of the words that you're putting together. And when you read other people's, you get a sense of the structure of a poem and why a certain structure works for something. But that's still your voice in that container, whether it's a sonnet or an essay or just a small journal entry. 
And often the advice I give to people who want to start writing is take 10 minutes after dinner and just write one thing that you found surprising today or something that made you happy today. And just take 10 minutes. That's it. Just write in a journal. And it gives you a way to go back and look at things that have made you happy over time, things that surprised you. It could be anything, really. It's even something as small as that or writing about the nature that's around us here, which is just amazing. There's a flock of 70 turkeys that live here. There's at least a dozen white-tailed deer. We've seen mountain lions. We've seen bear. We've seen red-shouldered hawks that live right out back, which is nice because they eat the snakes, which is great. And all kinds of birds. And the nature around here is so inspirational. And just being able to walk outside and see that is just phenomenal, which is one of the reasons we moved from the city to here. And I've noticed that being in this environment has really added a new layer of complexity to my thinking about my writing. Because as I look back and read, through some things. I don't notice a shift into this more natural world until we moved. And so that's also important for other people to notice is those shifts in their lives. With writing, you have a historical record of where you've been and you can kind of sense where you're going to. And it also helps with questions for your doctor on a very practical level. So I was feeling this way on this day I better remember to bring that up with my oncologist. So it also helps with that too. There's the nice sweet side of things where you're talking about the gorgeous day that's out today or sad things like feeling lonely or isolated. But then there's the practical issues as well, which is, geez, I was really in a lot of pain that day. I should talk to my oncologist about that, where it was and why. So there's some great things that can come out of it. And no one should ever feel like they have nothing to say. Everybody has something to say. They do. Thank you for that one. I know that you recently wrote on your blog, thecancerbus.com, that my cancer didn't include the travel to get to stage four. I started at the end. When I was a kid, I read the last chapter of the books. I'd swallow whole first. I hated surprises. And then I jumped to a next section. It's my karmic fate that I not have to suffer the stages or have a primary cancer. I'm not sure if this is a reward or a punishment. However, the density of my breasts is as stubborn as I still am and always was. So I read that and I'm going, oh my goodness, this woman. And I want to get to know her at every stage of life. And that's just like one segment of this vastness of your talented and beautiful writing. So here's the question. (laughs) Do you ever wish that you had an earlier diagnosis? No, I don't. I really don't. I think that looking back, At my health at the time, I remember feeling a little more fatigued than I normally had. And I'm a hyper energetic person. I have ADHD. Yeah, you can tell probably from my writing I have ADHD. But it probably would have been very difficult for me to go through the 
mastectomies, the lymphedema in my arms, the things that I hear other people going through, and then the waiting to know if you're going to have a recurrence. That would have been in the back of my mind all the time. And I would have wanted to get to it already so I could get it over with. Because to me, there's nothing worse than that uncertainty. I like knowing things. I like planning them out. I like understanding what's going to happen. I like being the captain of my oncology team. They suggest, but I make the final decision on things. And I wonder if I had gone through the earlier stages, would I have been as forceful in what I wanted? Because knowing that you're going to recover, I think that Perhaps I would have been less directive of my own care than I am now. Now I am very directive. I am very vocal. I come in as a very educated patient. And if the oncologists that I am with cannot deal with that or cannot listen or don't care what I have to say, then I will move on. And so I've had my oncologist now for four years because we have this amazing relationship. He's at Stanford. And having moved up here, we added someone from UC Davis. And he warned her about me (laughs) in advance saying, she's not your typical patient. She's going to come in knowing a lot more than your patients normally know, asking questions that are outside of what you're used to getting. And she will tell you what she would like to know about. And so what they've done is actually started having conversations before I actually even see her. So they talk for about an hour a month about my case. So I've built this nice team around me. Then I have a palliative oncologist that helps me. And I wouldn't have had that palliative oncologist in the earlier stages, helping me with side effects, helping me with the psychosocial issues that we all face, whether stage zero or de novo stage four or going into a secondary cancer, I don't think I would have wanted to have gone through that knowing what I know now. If you would have asked me then, probably I would have rather been just early stage. So I know that you're participating just next week, actually, at the survivingbreastcancer.org's Poetry Slam. And tell us about those kinds of forums and what it means to you to participate in them. When I saw the invitation, I immediately just went through my poems and sent some stuff in to William, and he thanked me. And I thought it was a selection process. And he said, no, you're, we're doing it. And this is happening. I'm like, great. When? Next week? Fine. To me, that's great. Not having to wait months before something can occur, because I don't know about you, but my memory is certainly not what it used to be. So the closer to the event that I'm told, the better. So I'm glad about that. But I've already had so many opportunities to read through the vlog and through other events and places that it's not a new thing for me. So I'm not really nervous about it or anything. And I think because of the audience and knowing we're such a small community of people, fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately in that a lot of us know each other or we've heard of each other if we're vocal. And so I think that it's a 
kind group of non-judgmental people who are listening. And so with that, it's a much more relaxed situation. It's not like I'm going into a cafe where I don't know anybody and I'm going to be booed off the stage if they don't like my stuff. So fortunately, I won't hear any booze, I don't think. I know that you're involved in a number of different forums. We've talked about that. What are your goals when you're sharing your writing on your blog, for example? Did you have some initial goals and now they're different? Yeah, I think so. I think the initial goal was to just put it out there and to tell the story as it was unfolding before me. And I think blogs can be very interesting in that they can be just about you and just about your experience. But it turned out that the comments that I started receiving started to influence the writing that I was doing on a forward basis. Whereas it started out as, here's what happened. Here's how I was diagnosed. Here's what just happened at this PET scan or whatever it was or the feelings that I had. And then a poem, I would start to get engagement in my comments section from people and also read other blogs. And I think it's important to have that interaction and to understand also who's out there writing in the same arena that you are. And so this conversation starts to take place. And so what I actually did once was I collected all the comments that I had written to other people and that they had written to me and smushed them all together and put one long blog post together about two years ago just to say, this is a conversation. This is not just a one-way talking person. Just this is my little blog and this is all about me. It's not all about me because NBC is a community. It's small. It has mourning that we face on a personal and daily basis about parts of ourselves that we lose, parts of our lives, and friends that we lose all the time. And that influenced my writing more than I thought it would, that loss. And the loss of others makes me feel very sad, not just for their families and the people that they leave behind, but it made me realize that I wasn't so much afraid of death anymore. It was the fear of leaving people behind with that sadness and also my community of friends with that sadness to carry. There's a great quote, and I honestly don't know who said it. And I think it's one of these anonymous quotes that I read, but they say that you die two deaths. The first one is when you physically die. And the second one is when somebody who's living last says your name. And that has to do with legacy. And I think that legacy can be something that's very distasteful when it's forced. But I see now that this blog, my writing, my interactions, and my involvement and service to the community is my legacy, whether it lasts a long time or a short time, it's still going to be there after I'm gone. And I've even actually, in my wishes, I have a person named to upkeep it and make sure it's staying 
the way it needs to stay and stays paid for a certain amount of time so that it can linger beyond me. And it also is a gift to my husband because he's not dealt with this very well at all. He sees it as he said to me years ago, the longest goodbye. And that's a very difficult thing to watch someone have to go through is this very long goodbye. And so to have my voice both on air, in writing, and also video whenever he wants to see me or hear me, he'll have that. And I know right now he he can't read it. He can't even go near it. But when I'm gone, which will be before him, I think some people live a very long time. In fact, I just got off a call this morning and someone's been 24 years with NBC. And I think to myself, wow, do I want to live that long with this? The stuff that we have to go through, it's rough on us. It's rough on us emotionally. It's rough on us physically. It's rough on us in every way. But I was like, wow, that's a hopeful thing. But in this case where I know that it's a crazy cancer, the lobular cancer is, is a weird one and it affects my liver, it affects my bones, it affects my peritoneum. I get ascites, which is cancerous fluid that builds up in the abdomen. And I just went through a whole bunch of that and I dare not read about it because, and talk about differences. For me, that's an early warning system for us. When I get an ascites, attack, it says something's wrong and it doesn't mean I'm about to go. Whereas for other people, it's like the warning sign that the end is near. So for me, that's not been the case. And I think it's a very unique thing to have a voice that is going to live on beyond you. And I keep that in mind when I write, because is there anything that I would put down that I wouldn't want to be there without me to explain it. And that's another caution, which is saying things about people that are negative or that you wouldn't say to them face-to-face or shouldn't be aired publicly, things that are confidential that people have told you or things that are confidential in my life that I don't think Craig would want people to know it's also important not to put out there in the public. Now that can be buried in a poem and no one would know what I was talking about. It would be the emotional impact of that event, but it wouldn't be naming anything in particular. And that's the difference between sort of the personal essay and the autobiographical piece. It's also the poetry piece, which is why I think I've always leaned towards it because you can actually distill your emotions into a very concise, the fewest number of words that you can express something in. There's a conservation of words that you use. And to me, that is the place to do that. That's the place where I can express these things without naming it per se. But there's no place to do that publicly. And I'm really cognizant of that. And I actually wrote a piece for the LBBC blog, which actually talks specifically about that, which is be careful what you say, especially if you're saying it publicly, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and you don't want to raise something that's confidential 
and put it out in the public, even about yourself, because it's going to live beyond. And that's something to consider for sure. I know that we've been living online for the last year and it's had its advantages as you articulated. And you mentioned that it provides something a little bit different, but can you expand on that a little bit? Anything different in terms of the creative process that the online forums have provided for you? Yeah, I think, again, it's that conversation, right? So there's Twitter and I use Twitter a lot because it's immediate. And it also lingers as well. So you have your sort of years of tweets. And it's funny to see the ones that I did when I was in the business world as opposed to the ones now. It's so different. But that allows me to communicate with people globally. And so I have a lot of people that I communicate with in the UK. Mariana O'Connor, who has Journey Beyond Breast Cancer, JBBC. She does a weekly roundup of breast cancer and cancer blog posts that she's read. And there's a community built right there. And she has had breast cancer, but currently does not, and is just a social media genius and works in the medical field in Ireland. Mm. And so she's a big part of my world because we've become close friends as a result of it. And so there's that. And There's going from Twitter to, say, YouTube, which is a one-way communication, but it's a way to put a personality behind the words, a face to the words, a physicality that you don't get when you read a blog. I can put my picture up, which I do, and I'm very honest about what I post. In fact, there was a post I wrote about four years ago, three years ago, I had a screw up with my palliative oncologist at the time and my pain medications weren't refilled. And I went through a horrible opioid withdrawal for three days until that Monday. And it turned out my husband was out of town in Minnesota visiting friends. So I had no way to deal with it. I was by myself. It was me and my cat laying in bed, sweating all weekend, literally. And I took pictures of myself going through this. And in black and white, purposely actually posted them on the blog to say, this is what this really looks like. This is not something we choose. This is not something we want. This is for real pain. And the pain of going through these withdrawals is so horrible. And the feedback I got on that was, thank you for saying that, because it's embarrassing to talk about. And it's like this strange secret. And I think that, again, bi-directional conversation is so important because, again, we are so isolated. We are on our own with so much of this. Sometimes just reading and not commenting and not putting a like, that's okay, too. Just to have that sense of, I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone. And that's where I think the rubber meets the road with the blogs, with the poetry, with everything else. When I know that someone else has connected with me on some level and they feel better, less lonely, less isolated, less weird about how they feel, Mm -hmm. then I feel so pleased, not with myself, it's not necessarily with me, but with them for reaching back out and saying, thank you. 
And it's that gratitude I really have for them for coming to me and saying, thank you. I, I feel noticed and appreciated in a space where we normally feel invisible mm-hmm. and no longer part of the world, no longer part of daily life, no longer part of communities that we used to be in. And so developing our own communities is so important. And not just through the nonprofits, not just through the the general channels that we normally go through, like being a patient advocate, which I am, mm-hmm. or training to do better types of support calls and healing circles. I did that. I did 40 hours of training to do that. It wasn't insignificant. Mm-hmm. And putting my time into service to help them to take it to the next level then. So that gratitude needs to be returned in, in some way from me. And that's how I've chosen to do it. So then expanding out even further into service to the metastatic community, that was always important to me from the beginning, as it was in my professional career. When I first got into telecommunications, there were no women on the speaking circuit. So myself and a woman who had a research firm got together and said, we're sick of hearing the same men talk on the speaking circuit. So we started a women's speakers bureau. So there's never been a time where I don't say, hey, there's a need, I'm going to help and let's try and fill that. And I will look for somebody to partner with who is outside of the mainstream necessarily, because that's what needs to happen. We need to pull people in from the fringes and bring them in. And so now there's a much broader spectrum of actually women speakers than men speakers in telecom as a result. When she and I left due to professional obligations, we didn't have time to put in. They actually changed the name of it. It was called WIT, Women in Telecommunications. The people who took it over after us changed it to WINC, W-I-N-C, Women in Network Communications. And it was a little too cutesy, and that's not what we wanted. We wanted something more serious. So WIT versus WINC, it parallels my distaste for things about boobies and pink things and grabbing them and feeling people up. It's not a matter of something to be cute about or over-sexualized. And I think that's what happened then. And when I see that happen now, it drives me nuts. We know that mindfulness practice can help all kinds of people and individuals living with a terminal illness. It can help with symptom management and, and overall well-being. But Therapeutic writing can be a form of that. Do you have any tips for therapeutic writing helping with mindfulness and mindfulness helping with therapeutic writing? Yeah, I think they go hand in hand, honestly. I think that people have definitions of mindfulness. And I think it's a word that's tossed around a lot, and people don't really have a good solid understanding of what it is but to me it's being in the moment being present and being aware of what's going on around you both in yourself the people around you and then the wider scope of things you're not alone in this world being mindful of the fact that for instance right now we're all wearing masks we don't see each other smiling anymore. 
So if I smile at a clerk in a shop, she doesn't know that I'm doing that. So I often will say, I'm smiling under here and being mindful that maybe she needs to know that I feel good about the transaction. Something as, as minor as that can help to show people that you are aware of them as human beings and being present in the moment and actually deeply listening to other people, whether that be through their writing, through talking to them. And also, it's okay to have silence for a little while too. It's okay to be in those calm moments where we can actually just be. And I think that the best friends that you can have are the ones that you can sit quietly with and say nothing, not have to ask. And with cancer, sometimes that's all you want is someone to be there for you. How that translates to writing, I think, is more through probably my poetry than anything else. Because you have to be mindful of not only what you're saying, but how you're trying to express yourself. If it's sadness, if it's joy, if it's physical pain, whatever it is, all of that requires a mindful state of being in yourself, noticing what's going on with you both emotionally and physically, and actually translating that into words. And it's a very delicate space to be in. But I also meditate, and it's taken me years to do that. So consider somebody who was, you know, triple A personality running around like maniac and all of a sudden I need to deal with this thing, whatever it is, and feel my emotions and not push them down and push them away and save them for later and all of that. And so had to learn to meditate and actually have no issue getting into a fairly deep state at this point, but it's been years of practice. And I think without a sense of mindfulness, a sense of being able to quiet yourself long enough to hear what's going on around you and inside of you is going to produce, for me anyway, my best writing comes out of those moments, those quiet moments where I'm able to hear what I really mean. Because sometimes, and you'll see these long, circuitous posts where I'm just mind-flowing everywhere. And that's just because that's how I feel at the moment. I feel all of these things all at once, like the one I posted last night. It's all over the place, but it actually comes together finally at the end. But that's how we all are. We're all all over the place. And it's in that sort of coming together and bringing all of those things together into one neat wrapper that says, okay, all these things are going on. I think I'm losing it a little bit. I need to bring myself back to this moment right here. Don't worry about what's going on going forward. Don't worry about what happened yesterday. Just be here. Just be with my breath. Just be with my words and leave it alone. And allow myself to even publish that stuff, right? Not to just keep it in a journal, but allow myself to actually put that out there. I think gives other people a sense of, yeah, 
you're not crazy for thinking all of these things at once because somebody else is too. And that's always going to be the case. And I have an antique, huge painting of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. You know, I look at that when I'm on my calls and when I'm being interviewed or talking to friends and it settles me back down into the moment, into the time, into that deep listening and listening to myself as well and knowing when I need to stop, knowing when I need to calm down and say, okay, that's good enough. I'm good with that. But I also think that writing is a part of being mindful because I would give people this recommendation. If you don't think you're a writer, you are, because you don't have to publish something or have a blog. Like I mentioned earlier, you can just sit down Take a time of day that works for you and just take a few minutes and just write something that came to mind that you want to either remember or that thing that seemed really beautiful to you that day or you had a good experience or you had a bad experience. Just jot it down. Keep a journal. Literally, there's four on my desk right now journals because they go everywhere with me i keep one in my bag one next to the bed one on my desk one in the kitchen and in fact painted a whiteboard on one wall in my kitchen there's actually a poem on there i need to actually transpose to one of my notebooks because sometimes it just comes to you and be mindful enough to know and then just write it down write whatever you feel and i think with metastatic breast cancer especially we go through so many emotional changes in the course of just a day, it's okay to write about it. Just go for it. I have actually written on the back of business cards, on receipts, on it just depends what I'm doing. And I'm very fast on my keyboard. And what I find is if I write longhand, it slows me down a little bit, which is probably a good thing. And then I also use my voice. So one thing you might try is if I can't type, I'll actually just speak it into my notes on my iPhone. And that's another good way to get your voice out. So my advice would be keep a notebook with you. This way, when you get the urge, you always have something to write on and a pen that works or a pencil that works. I find that when I have a pen that I really like, I'll tend to write more than when I don't. If I don't like the pen, I won't write as much. It's bizarre. but. I have this one pen that's a, a fountain pen that I like to write with. And, and it slows me down a little bit because I can't read my own handwriting half the time, which is also bad when I have to transcribe it for the blog. So yeah, I would say just keep something with you or where you spend the most time. For me, I, a lot of time is in the kitchen still, unfortunately, but I keep something in the kitchen, something next to the bed, and that seems to work. And in the bathroom. Unfortunately, I spend a little too much time in the bathroom. This one's called Dense Breasts. Recondite illnesses of fateful obscurity, a snowball in a snow globe seen, yet difficult to see. Unusually dense, I failed each test. Winter settled in, leaving flurries in my chest. Scratched and scarred and moored by a port, I laid there waiting in pain and contorted. Go home and get your fares in order. 
but there's too much to tend to and my nest still the feather. A future unknown with three tumors unseen cut my life down the center right in between my eyes through the sights of the two-barreled gun. The results signed by a doctor reads, yes, my pet, life's over and done. But I raced away until I could no longer breathe and decided that my life was too valuable to concede. But when density was a meaningless number, nothing to report, no information for the owner, secrets and lies, and then one day a surprise when the ultrasound found what the snow had disguised. So here I sit, nearing six years later, among my affairs and hordes of paper, and I decided that day I wasn't through living, and not doctors or nurses, but I who needs forgiving. It's no one's fault when they're born to possess two ticking time bombs planted in their chest. There's a gene mutation that no one can find. So my kindred spirits in body and mind, please look at me doing well enough, I hope. It's cancer and not God's punchline to some killing joke. This episode on the healing power of writing will be joined with a very special bonus episode next Monday with readings from Wildfire Writer Nights that happened over the past year. You won't want to miss these exquisite stories read by the authors themselves on topics that cover family, our bodies, grief, MBC in general, sexuality, relationships, and much more. Soon, we'll be able to go to the theater, listen to live music, and go to coffee shops and hear authors speak. In the meantime, we can listen to these writers here on this podcast in a special release from Wildfire. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann. Along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens and Samantha Silverstein. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.